Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, uh, the 22nd of February, 2022. Uh, we've done shows on equality in America uh, the unfairness of the system, or at least how many of our guests perceive the system as being unfair. I'm not quite sure we've had a book, though, quite as brutal as the one we're talking about in terms of making sense of America. Uh, this book is called Injustice, Inc., How America's Justice System Commodifies Children and the Poor. It's a shocking title, Dickensian, I guess, in many ways, in its implications. Uh, Daniel uh, Hatcher has uh, spent a lot of time studying this stuff. He's joining us uh, from his law school in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Daniel, how Dickensian has America become, at least in your mind? Well, good morning, and, and thank you so much for having me on the show. At least good morning from, from Baltimore um, to Dickensian, and, and, and I think that's an apt description, and, and including in my last book titled The Poverty Industry, um, I, I wrote about these examples where even foster care agencies are seeking out children in their care who are disabled or have deceased parents in order to take their resources, literally uh, taking their survivor and disability benefits. Um, and this book, um, so and, and that past book is, is looking at how the agencies are monetizing vulnerable populations. In this book, it's looking how our justice systems are. Um, and it's striking um, in terms of the vastness of, of how systems of justice have, have abdicated our mission, right, to move towards maximizing revenue using those. Yeah, so, so your last book was The Poverty Industry, The Exploitation of America's Most Vulnerable Citizens. So, Daniel, is it systematic and is it intentional? Is someone architecting this system or are the poor, the vulnerable, the children, are they unintended casualties of a system that lacks any kind of logic that's out of control and perhaps too controlled by the market? Right. I, I think that's an excellent question. And I, I think it's both happening simultaneously, right? There are unintended consequences of some policies and practices um, that are developed. But then we see in, in my research in this book, um, example after example, where institutions of justice are actively seeking out, knowingly seeking out revenue from the individuals that they're supposed to serve. Right. You know, so um, again, I, I, I think it's this trend that, that I'm seeing in my, in my research where uh, America's courts, prosecutors, probation departments, policing agencies are increasingly running like a business. Right. And we heard this um, a lot during the 80s and 90s that government should run more like a business. Right. But here, you know, like um, our courts aren't supposed to be about making profit from the individuals they serve, right? They're supposed to exist to serve that mission of equal and partial justice. Um, so when they instead use the litigants that are before them to maximize revenue, it completely shifts that mission and immense harm results. So Daniel, tell us some stories from Injustice Inc. How does this actually work um, of an American 
justice system that is actually commodifying children and the poor. Give me uh, a couple of, of case studies of how this is actually working in practice. Sure. So, so in a, a striking example um, that I uncover in the book is out of Ohio, um, where I found all these contracts where the juvenile courts are literally entering contracts to become part of the executive branch, right? And if you just pause and think about that for a bit, you know, the structure of, of government in the U.S. is supposed to be based upon um, a separation of powers and independence between the branches of government. And crucially within that structure, our courts are supposed to be independent. But here we have the juvenile courts in Ohio literally contract and become part of the executive branch to take on the role of being an executive branch local foster care agency. And the reason they do it is so they can make money, they can generate revenue from child removals. Literally, the more children that the courts adjudicate um, delinquent, so that, you know, the court puts on its court hat, adjudicates children delinquent, um, which allows the court then to put on its foster care agency hat and, and determine placement, placement services to, to remove the child, right? Possibly placing the child even in a residential treatment facility run by the court, right? And then the court puts its court hat back on and rules on its own actions, right? So rules what you're saying is that it's in the court's interest, for example, to uh, define a child as delinquent because they make money out of it. They certainly can, right? And then either... Um, to result in a child removal, or they can also generate revenue from that child um, as labeling them as a foster care candidate, right? You know, and that allows them then to continue processing the child to pull in the probation department processing. And, and the longer the child is processed, um, the more revenue the, the courts can make. And, it, and it's so striking when you look at it, it's, it's not just generating revenue from the direct services, um, even more um, are being generated from administrative costs. Um, the juvenile court structure is literally using um, low-income children to fund overhead, right? And that comes down to almost... So it's a kind of a 19th century Dickensian world being rewritten or re-architected for a, a, a 21st century neoliberal scenario. Absolutely. With modern technology. Right. You know, like, you know, when when so the the scope, you know, of, of harm from that Dickensian mindset um, is, is vast, much more vast now. Daniel, you talk about Injustice Inc., uh, how America's justice system commodifies children. But aren't there two justice systems in America? Because the poor and the vulnerable um, children, they're not. They don't understand the justice system. They're not able to pay for proper lawyers. They don't have representation. Whereas people with money use the justice system through lawyers and for, for their, I wouldn't say for their own advantage. But if people find themselves, people like yourself or, my, or myself if we, or our families, if we find ourselves in the criminal justice system, um, we're able to look after ourselves. But the problem is, is, many aren't. So aren't there two justice systems in America? Yes, I, I think that's a, an accurate um, summary of, of what we have here. Um, and unfortunately, it's, it's, um, it's continuing. You know, this isn't new in terms of the unequal treatment, um, but it's growing in terms of its scope, again, by, by the 
the power of time and technology. Um, and, and all the revenue schemes that I uncover in the book, the impact is vastly disproportionate based upon income and, and race, right? You go county by county across the U.S. and the disproportionate racial impact is just severe and, and severely harmful. Um, Who and- defends this system? I mean, the Republican Party seems to have rebelled against its neoliberal roots and now is fetishizing identity and other aspects of the cultural war. Are there still people who are able to articulate a support for this system? Or has the system essentially acquired its own logic and just continues as is? Well, I, th- I think, you know, most of these reckon- revenue mechanisms are largely occurring in the dark um, and even more so um, in the juvenile systems, which are confidential um, in the U.S., right? Um, so um, the defense, you know, when I hear it, and, I, and I've heard this in a variety of issues that I've advocated on that I've uncovered in my research, is the agencies need revenue. Right. And sure, you know, like if you're going to operate services, if you're going to have agency operations, you need revenue to operate. But when you have agencies such as a foster care agency, a juvenile court, right, whose sole reason for existing, right, is for protecting the best interests, right, of those low income individuals, right? Consider a foster care agency. They exist, right, to protect and serve um, foster youth. When that agency instead turns because of its pursuit of revenue to using those citizens, those those vulnerable children that they exist to serve, right, to mine them for money, um, that's just, again, a complete abdication of why they exist. um, And it causes immense harm. It pulls low-income children, it pulls their families into these systems that are inescapable. One of the other aspects of this, which I know you've written about and given a lot of thought to, is the privatization of the jails and prisons themselves. How much is this bound up with Injustice, Inc.? Very much so, uh, unfortunately. And you know, one of the chapters in the book, I write about the, the wide variety of detention um, centers, uh, juvenile jails, juvenile detention centers, residential treatment centers, right? They have all kinds of good sounding names that are used a lot now, like academies and camps, um, you know, you name it. Um, but the goal, you know, and, and these facilities that I'm seeing time after time again, um, many of them now privately run. Um, many of those facilities, you start out with maybe a small company that you know, runs a few, that company is bought up by a larger company, that company is bought up by yet a larger company. Suddenly you have, um, you know, a company so large that it's traded um, on the stock market, you know, buying up these literally bodies in the beds, right? The title of the chapter is Bodies in the Beds. And, and the, the revenue maximization strategy is maximizing occupancy while minimizing cost of care. Right. You know, and that results in, you know, it's just it, it's heartbreaking is an understated word, you know, use when you when you uh, read the stories. And these are just the stories that have been uncovered in these in these you know, large. Daniel, places. to what extent has this created a shall we call them a, a new class of state capitalist bureaucrats whose interest is to maintain and defend this system? I, I think it's a good question. And I think it has. And, and it's. 
it's this layer of, of um, sort of distorted capitalism, right? Where um, it's not just these government agencies partnering with private companies, right? The use of privatization. And I've written about that before and I have concerns um, with um, the use of, of private contracts and, and many of these examples. But, you know, if you pause, you think, you know, a for-profit company exists to make a profit. That's their pure mission. Government, again, you know, the government agencies or courts, you know, their mission is to maximize welfare or maximize the pursuit of justice, right? They're, they're not supposed to exist to earn a profit. But what I'm seeing is not only are they partnering with the private sector, they're acting like the private sector, right? You know, they're totally shifting. They're, they're again, abdicating their intended mission of maximizing our welfare, maximizing justice towards maximizing revenue and efficiency. They've become a factory business, right? You know, it's like, a, um, you know, almost an assembly line, but sort of the reverse, like a disassembly line. And, and you have low income struggling, already struggling individuals are deconstructed, right, through this process for every possible penny. Daniel, is this a problem essentially at the local or state level? I mean, is this an issue that can or should be addressed at the federal level? Um, or, or, or does it need to be thought out in individual states? I'm guessing, browsing through your book, uh, I, I think you, you'll probably concur here, that some states, some regions, poorer states, Alabama, the South in particular, um, are much worse than wealthier states, Massachusetts, New York. So again, it, it, it mirrors so much of the other forms of injustice and discrimination in America today. Right. Um, and you do see, you know, from, from, from my research, it tends to be that some of the most striking um, harmful practices are happening in states where there's a greater percentage of poverty, um, and then um, often those states, uh, unfortunately, ha uh, often have um, conservative leaders who are who are turning towards um, reducing aid for the poor. But simultaneously, what you're seeing is like they're then using these revenue um, maximization schemes, right, to actually pursue the federal aid, but not to actually help the low income individuals, but to fund. So they're, they're, they're literally having their cake and eating. They're taking aid from the, from the federal government in the name of justice or fairness, and they're actually using it to profit themselves and compound injustice and unfairness. That's right. That, that's that's a, a perfect um, summary of, of the problem, unfortunately. You know, a, a perfect summary. Okay, and, Daniel, and you uh, you work in, as I said, you're a professor of law, and you're also part of the of the Saul Ewing Civil Advocacy Clinic at the University of Baltimore. Unfortunately, this is not a sexy subject. It's depressing. It doesn't get the headlines uh, for one reason or another. <laughs> And yet it gets to the very core of the unfairness of American society. How can you change that? Well, that's that's a complex uh, but really important question, you know, like because I've been working on these issues. I've been representing low income individuals for over 25 years. And, and the stress is hard. You know, like it's 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 I still see the faces like I I, I feel 
um, the stress that my clients um, have dealt with. You know, secondary trauma is real, is real. And then, but, you know, candidly, simultaneously, I feel guilt for feeling that secondary trauma because I'm not the one going through these difficulties. I mean, I mean, foster children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder in the U.S. at twice the level of veterans of war. Um, so, you know, how we start fixing these is we have to keep, we have to keep trying, you know, like I, 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 you know, there are times when I wish I could just give into apathy. All right. And, um, work on something else. Um, you know, but I can't, you know, like when, when you, um, help the, the actual individuals, right. When you understand the stories and then when you read the data and it's, and it's example after example, when my research takes me into, um, these sort of matrixes, right, you know, and, and uncovering um, the schemes that are causing harm, that just drives me even more. Uh, Daniel, I, it's one of the problems that children obviously can't vote, and the poor mostly in America don't choose not to vote or can't vote. Um, obviously, people who have been in jail can't vote. These people aren't part of the political process. So politicians either don't see them, or, or perhaps even more troubling, don't care about them. Right. They're, they're unfortunately an easy target, right? And, well, they're and, invisible. They're invisible yeah. in, in, in American political narrative. No one discusses them. They don't have a voice. So we fetishize a lot of the drama of injustice at, a, at an almost sort of disney level. But the real issues of injustice are never addressed in this country. Unfortunately, often true. Um, and, you know, again, you know, like children, you know, in these systems, it's not just that they can't vote, you know, that these these operations are happening in confidential systems. Right. And many, most of the low income individuals you know, don't have um, a powerful voice. You know, many are encumbered, again, by by criminal records, you know, the, the strategies that use probation departments. Right. As, as you know, one of the chapters in the book that I write about, you know, that, you know, they're making millions by processing low-income individuals and children through probation um, ongoing, right? And that very fact of being on probation in, in many states will not allow them to vote. Um, so, yes, it's, it's disenfranchising, and that's historical um, in, in this country. So much of the harm has continued. But I will say that, you know, I'm, I've been so amazed by um, some individuals, including some former foster youth themselves who do, you know, they will, you know, fight through, you know, what, you know, the barrier after barrier after barrier that they've uh, encountered um, and then have a voice to try to, to try to struggle for change, right. To try to right these wrongs, you know, like some but of them. This, like should this come from remarkable? In, I mean, you can always find a remarkable individual who can fight through any system. I'm assuming that for you, that's not the fix. The fix is a systemic, um, a systemic one of, of approaching this and undoing this this privatized justice system. That's correct, um, and and yes, you know, because I do think there's there's risk in pointing to an individual, right, who has done well, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the sort of Andrew Carnegie uh, sort of Victorian approach. Well, if you work hard and you put your head down, you can always get out of it. Look at me. But those are the exceptions. Yeah, I'm absolutely certain, you know, like, you know, my first year as a legal aid lawyer, I was representing hundreds of children in, in the, you know, the dysfunctional Baltimore foster care 
system. And I'm absolutely certain if I was in their shoes, I wouldn't have made it out. There's just no chance, you know, like, you know, look, I mean, I had all the supports in the world growing up and I still struggled, you know, with, with different issues, you know, like my low income adult clients, you know, the, the, the difficulties that they encounter. And I know for certain um, I wouldn't have made it out, you know, like, so it's, it's an honor um, to have the chance to try to help, you know, to have a, you know, the little role that I can have to help them individually in, the, in their, in their, in their active cases, as you mentioned, uh, teach right. the, the, the heartbreaking aspect of all this, of course, is these kids are completely innocent. It's completely, their fate is entirely undeserved. What kind of impact is it having on, and I know it's hard to talk about a typical kid who has been victimized by this new privatized system but what kind of impact is it having on their lives and their heads their mentalities their way of looking at the world yeah i mean it's it's um immeasurable right you know like what i mentioned before you know foster youth who, who are who are pulled into the the system um most um come from low-income families most are pulled into the the child welfare system often now um referred to as the family policing system um, in, in the U.S. due to circumstances of, of poverty, right, and neglect, um, alleged neglect from that poverty. So the children are already struggling, you know, with, with difficulties. Their families are struggling because of all these systemic barriers um, that are put before them. And then to be removed from your family, Right. Like it's just, you know, to pause and think about the trauma that comes from that for, for, for the parent, for the child. And then that child is monetized and, and, a, and a system, um, you know, given a probation officer. Sometimes if it's, you know, a lot of children are, are pulled into both the, the, the child welfare foster care system while simultaneously into the juvenile delinquency system. Right. Because if you're suffering from trauma, which again, you know, like, you know, foster children suffer from PTSD at twice the level of war veterans, right? If you're suffering from that trauma, you're more likely to be pulled into the juvenile delinquency system. And then you have the school to prison pipeline, you know, that they're faced with and uh, the vast dis disproportionate rate of referrals of low-income children and children of color into both systems. The trauma doesn't end, you know, if you even compare, you know, to, to veterans of war, and I'm, I'm not at all going to diminish the, the, the trauma that comes from that, um, but the deployment at a, at a serious point of time ends, right? You know, for these youth where they're going through the system, it's unending while they're in the system, and then it follows them into adulthood where they're continuing to be processed and targeted for the revenue generation mechanisms, right? And the poverty trauma continues with them. There's obviously a, a huge literature on the history of slavery in America, Daniel. I'm sure you're very familiar with, with, it, with that tragic history. This isn't slavery, but it's a kind of surreal uh, next chapter in the history of slavery, isn't it? Where these people become owned by the state and the state profits by them. Is there some comparison i don't want to devalue obviously slavery and, and and suggest that everything now in terms of commodification is a new kind of slavery but it it it, it is particularly chilling given this country's history of slavery right well well certainly you know the enslaving 
humans um, in America and the, and the colonies before um, is the you know, earliest devastatingly harmful example of commodifying humans, right? And right. You know, those so practices continued, you know, like in, in different ways. I write about in the book, um, for example, and, you know, one of the chapters where I talk about the policing agencies, including sheriffs, um, and just one of the revenue mechanisms that are used contractually, sheriff sales, right, in which the sheriffs are still generating um, kind of a finder's fee, a contingency, right, from, from their sales. And sheriff sales originated um, with the sheriffs literally selling enslaved individuals on the courthouse steps um, to pay off court-ordered debts, uh, potentially, of um, the individuals who enslaved the, the humans. Um, and then there's other examples with um, what were called apprenticeship programs um, um, during both before um, and after the Civil War here, you know, um, entering the Black Codes and then the Jim Crow laws, forced apprenticeships, you know, were, were again targeted um, almost exclusively towards Black youth um, who were taken from their families and then forced to work for free, sometimes, you know, even with the people who originally enslaved them, right? And now we see in the, you know, the juvenile structure that, you know, many of the, uh, the, the systems across the country, the juvenile courts, the probation department, sometimes the sheriffs, right? Well, again, you know, for- Daniel, for some people might be listening or watching this and thinking, well, maybe, maybe there are some profoundly unjust cases, but this is still a tiny minority. What kind of numbers are involved? Do you have numbers on this? The numbers are vast, you know, and if you look at some of the, the some of the funding, what's happening with these revenue mechanisms, like, you know, I use an example out of Alabama, um, where one of the, the revenue streams that the uh, prosecutor's offices in, in Alabama are pulling in is, is the pursuit of fines and fees against, again, low income individuals. Starts with the courts ordering um, fines. Um, fees and that, you know, a $500 fine will, will quickly balloon into thousands and then more fees will be added on top of that. Um, that the prosecutor's offices in Alabama are generating 70%, up to 70% of their total budget from this pursuit of revenue from the poor and the courts are sharing um, in, in those takings. And so, so it's in all their interests again for these people to become bankrupt because then they get owned by these institutions and they profit from them. That, that's exactly right. You know, again, they're, they're profiting from the individuals that they're supposed to serve. Right. And there's this tension. I mean, it, it comes up in nonprofit organizations. You know, I, I, you know, teach at a university universities, you know, have attention, you know, do you exist for the mission of education and for your students or do you exist for yourself? You know, the same, you know, we could, you know, talk a lot about nonprofits, um, with that as well, do you exist for the nonprofit mission, right? Or do you exist to generate revenue for your own organization? Um, and you're seeing that tension um, in these justice systems. And it's alarming um, at the striking examples on which the justice systems have got on the wrong side of that tension, right? right? That, Daniel, I mentioned at the beginning uh, that this system sounds Dickensian. Of course, Dickens in particular, um, was a very popular writer who exposed so much of the suffering in 19th century industrial England. Um, 
Are there? I mean, you're an academic. This book you're, you're, you're coming out with is an important book, but it's unlikely to sell tens of thousands of copies. Are there popular writers, um, filmmakers, television uh, shows that are revealing this? Or do we need a, a, a new Dickens, a 21st century Dickens in America to reveal how rotten this, the, the system has become for the poor and for children in this country? It's a good question. You know, like I, I think we need much more uh, attention to these issues from um, from all of us involved, from from uh, academics, um, from frontline advocates, right, to, to having their voice, um, from the press, um, and from um, storytellers and other media, be it be it film um, or books, right music you know like i mean everything can tell a story um and that narrative is is so crucial um to help right i mean barbara ehrenreich just died she of course wrote nickled and dime she did a good job exposing some of the system but that was 20 years ago right where are the new barbara ehrenrichs who are actually revealing this in language that will resonate with hundreds of thousands of people well, you know, I have I've had the the honor to work with some excellent journalists um, over the last few years, and that gives me hope, you know, in terms of both their their interest in investigating and writing the stories um, about the impacted individuals and the the systems and the and the potential harm and the impact that can cause, you know, both with excellent journalists at at NPR, um, ProPublica, um, here. Yeah, they're good, although again. We're- little perhaps marginal and again preaching to the converted um daniel a lot of people are going to be watching this and disturbed profoundly because it is a terrible story it's probably the worst aspect of america and there are many bad aspects What, what can people do um should they be demanding of their politicians the bernie sanders and elizabeth warrens of the world who for for whom this this message would resonate but they're perhaps occupied with other issues Yes. I mean, I think that's a crucial part of the process is, is having that voice, right, is, is being a voice for the voiceless, you know, as you as you indicated before and helping to increase awareness. You know, you know it will require a process of of educating many policymakers. And you referenced earlier in our discussion you know, what level. Right. It's both um, uh, elected officials at the federal level um, who we need to educate and, and to um activate, you know, on these issues and also state and county, um, you know, like it's, it's all of those and communicating with the press, you know, like your show, you know, what, what you're doing by, by um, helping to increase awareness on a variety of such important topics, right. It couldn't be more crucial, right. You know, like, cause awareness is the beginning point of any change, right. Of, of any movement towards enlightenment. Um, so we have to start with that. So my hat's off also to you. You know, like I, I, I think it's um, it's a crucial role that you serve. 